that is horrible. Yeah. It's unethical, but it, it actually happens. So be careful. You don't have the job until you have it in writing. You're on the Faculty Factory Podcast, and I'm Kim Skorupski. Welcome. So coming to you from Hopkins, I'm really pleased to be looking at someone that unfortunately you can't see, but one of my mentors, a coach, a role model, Dr. Laura Schweitzer. Laura, how are you? I'm fine. How are you, Kim? I'm great now, especially since you're right here with me. Dr. Schweitzer has the unique honor of being the first female PhD to have led a United States medical school. Is that correct, Laura? I believe that is correct, <laughs> as far as we can tell. <laughs> and in addition to uh, Dr. Schweitzer having that unique distinction, you, you might want to check out episode number 91 back in October of 2020, where Dr. Laura Schweitzer was on the Faculty Factory podcast. And she talked about the four basic steps in a job search. So we know moving around our jobs and um, getting new leadership opportunities and ascending the academic career ladder or any career throughout our life involves opportunities. And Dr. Schweitzer gave us four great pointers on the job search. Briefly, updating your CV, responding to the ad, how do you respond to the solicitation, how to interview, and then, then to negotiate. And uh, Laura was just telling me as we began our conversation today, she has placed two deans, this is all in the recent months, two deans, a couple chairs of departments, and so she and she's a coach. So she knows what she's talking about. She knows how to help us get to the next level. And I'm going to um, ask Dr. Laura Schweitzer to just tell us a little bit about where she is today, what she's doing, how to get in touch with her. And then she's going to lead off with 12 mistakes that we can avoid when we're on the job market. So Laura, take it away and tell people, you know, where you are, what are you doing right now and how they can get in touch with you to tap into some of your coaching wisdom. Sure, sure. So um, I am semi-retired. I'm still actually on the payroll at the University of Albany, helping them with pre-med programs and getting disadvantaged students into medical school and other health professions uh, on a very part-time basis. But I spend more of my time actually coaching uh, women and minority applicants uh, who are on the executive search process for leadership positions, mostly in academic medicine, but some in engineering and some certainly university-wide positions. Uh, people can reach me at my email, which is schweitzerl at mac.com if they're interested in pursuing a high-level academic position like that. Um, I have been very successful in the last three years at helping a lot of women and underrepresented minority candidates achieve these positions. And I have a pretty systematic way of moving them through the process and uh, have had a lot of clients. Um, and I'm happy to share some wisdom with you today. Well, and Laura happens to be, I mean, 
the one who's yappering, yammering right now is one of Laura's coaches, coaches. The reason I have this position as now senior associate dean for faculty development at Johns Hopkins University is because of Laura Schweitzer's coaching me. So um, I'm a living example of her leadership and coaching brilliance. So go ahead, Laura. What are the 12 mistakes that we can avoid? Okay, why don't I march through just the list first okay. and then we can circle back and maybe visit each one for as long as you want to. Um, so the first uh, mistake is just doing a search on the whim without taking it seriously. The second on the flip side is not doing searches before the perfect job comes along. You need to do searches in advance and practice. The third is not taking the call with the search consultant seriously. You need to be positive and prepared for that call, even that very first call with the search consultant. The fourth is stating the needs of your partner too early in the process. And we'll talk about, you know, when is the best time to state what your partner needs in order to move. The fifth uh, relates to that podcast that uh, Kim mentioned to you uh, that I did earlier. And the fifth mistake is using cookie cutter documents instead of appealing to that particular search. We can talk about that a little bit. The sixth is not preparing for the interview. Going in and winging an interview is not a good idea. The seventh is not telling people at home before it gets back to them. You want to be in charge of that. The eighth is rushing the process, asking for your status before your status in the search is offered. That's a mistake. Uh, The ninth is giving notice at home before you have the offer in writing. Uh, The tenth is not negotiating. You need to negotiate. Um, and not writing in a severance package, which should be part of your negotiations. The 11th is not seeking legal advice early. Um, You need to seek legal advice early. And the 12th and last is not thinking through what's happening at home during your transition. So if you want to go back to number one, Kim, Uh, well, I love, yeah, this is a huge list. And what I love about the way you think is that you state these facts and that they're always a component of it that you go, what? And the one that just ju- jumped out at me that I'm actually looking at the list because you, know, you said it to me first was um, negotiating, not negotiating is a mistake and then not writing in a severance package because it cracks me up. And I've actually mentioned this um, coaching session on the podcast with you before when I called you up and I was like, Laura, I got the job. I got the job offer. They offered me the job. I can't believe it. Thank you so much. Wow, everything you said to do worked. And then you said, that's great, Kim. And you said, what's your exit strategy? And I was like, what? <laughs> My exit plan? You said, yes. Now you need to think about what is your exit plan. And it, it just completely like knocked me for a loop. And so I just think it's so important. The way the way you talk about things are just so special and unique. I would never have thought of these things, getting a new job, thinking about how you gonna, how you going to exit that new job. So yes, please, let's start with that. Doing a job search on a whim. What right. do you mean about that? 
So sometimes people just enter job searches that they know that there's no way that they will take the job. And that is a huge mistake. Um, I generally use a 10% rule. You have to be at least 10% sure that you would take the job if you land it or you're really doing a disservice to the institution that's spending time and money looking for the perfect candidate and you're not doing yourself any favors because the word gets out. Word gets out among search uh, consultants and firms well, I'm wondering why, you know, somebody may be listening to this podcast going, well, why would anyone do a job search on a whim anyway? But I can think of, gosh, I mean, many examples where faculty come in and maybe now you're entering a new year, you're on the tail end of a pandemic, you're frustrated, you're, you got some grants rejected, your paper didn't get published, you didn't get the leadership position in your division, your department. So you're feeling a sense of, well, that's it. I'm taking my toys up from the sandbox. And I'm going to go somewhere else. Or you're trying to negotiate, you know, a raise or you didn't get the promotion. So you're feeling kind of sour grapes. And so not that that's total whim, but I see this happen. And sometimes we all get our knickers in a knot and we're curious what's out there. But you're right, that kind of emotional hair trigger thing of like, well, that's it. I'm going to look for another job. Unless it's strategic and thought out can be, yeah, you get labeled, then your colleagues and your bosses, like you said, later on in another list, your people will find out. And if you keep threatening to leave, at some point, people are like, well, good, leave already. You know, st- stop threatening. <laughs> You're really wasting a lot of energy and time here and building bad morale and contributing to a climate that, it, you know, it's, it's not healthy. So that's why I think doing it on a whim, it's, it's a thing. People do it. It's, Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, sometimes people just literally get a call from a search consultant and they just decide they're going to do it, um, even though they're not really interested in the job. All of the reasons that you gave kind of have some kind of intention. Sometimes people just go ahead and just do a search on a whim. And it's really, it's not fair, not fair to the institution. And it really will do you harm. Got it. Okay. Number two, um, but not doing the searches before the perfect job comes along. What do you mean by that? Right. Oftentimes people will uh, not enter into searches if it's not the perfect job. Um, That is a mistake. You do, there is something to this being a skill, getting your materials together. The interview process there, it is a skill and, uh, you know, coaches can help you with that skill. But if you wait until the absolute, absolute perfect job comes along, then you are not prepared for it. I have seen it. Sometimes it takes people several searches before they really nail how to do those kinds, that level of interview. Um, And so, Again, the other thing is that jobs that do not appear as perfect at first, the more you learn about the institution, the more you get to know the people, maybe it is a job that you might actually move to. Again, that 10% rule, if there's not even 10% chance that you're going to take the job, don't waste anybody's time. But if there's 10% chance, give yourself the opportunity to learn more both about the job 
and in honing your own skills. Right. I, I, that's, that worked for me. That played out. I remember I interviewed for a position when I was just moving to Chicago before I got my Rush University Medical Center job. And it was at, um, gosh, doesn't matter, I guess, Northern Illinois, something, another institution. And I went to interview for position A. And as I was meeting with some key leaders, I mentioned that I had been doing, you know, one, two, and three back at Penn State. And the eyebrows kind of raised up. And, and she asked me, she's like, well, would you be interested in you know, like splitting your time and doing a leadership, you know, evaluation, something, something? And I was like, well, of course I would. So your point is so well taken that that um, discovery, not only of their needs, but what you can provide and meet their needs can only happen when you're in relationship with people, when you're in conversation. So that exercise and practice of learning how to present your best self and to look for opportunities to meet others' needs, that's a skill that even if I ended up ultimately, of course, not taking that job because I went to a rush, but you're giving a really great example that there's a sweet spot between not just willy-nilly applying for everything, but also being open to, well, it's not a dean role, so why would I bother? Well, you don't know what's going to happen when you go and apply for this job and other people know other people know other people and are so taken with you and say, oh my gosh, maybe not this one, but maybe later or maybe this other place or this other job. So yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know what this number three, not taking the call with the search consultant seriously. I don't really know. Okay, so oftentimes, you know, when you're nominated for a position at this level or you have uh, submitted uh, your materials um, for a position. The very, very first step is the search consultant in charge of the, of the search will want to have a phone conversation with you. So say I nominated you, Kim, for a job and I sent the executive summary of your CV and a, and a brief letter from me stating why I think you're qualified. The very first thing happens is that the search consultant will reach out to you and say, you've been nominated by Dr. Schweitzer for this position. Are you, can, can we have a conversation about it? And oftentimes people will take that call and just at face value, it's a call with the search consultant. They're calling me about the position and I'm just going to take the call. That is a mistake. That is the first step in the search process. You need to prepare for that. First of all, you need to find out something about the institution and be prepared to state why you might be interested in taking the position. Look at the position description, look into the institution a little bit and figure out why you might be, because they may say, are you interested in this? And you want to come back with an answer that's longer than just yes. I am interested in this position because X, Y, and Z. Mm. Um, so that takes a little bit of preparation. The other thing is you need to think about how you fit the job and be prepared to start I'll use the word selling yourself to the search consultant. The search consultants have a huge role in the search process. Do not underestimate the power of the search consultants. They are important. 
And so this is your opportunity to impress them. The other thing is that these search consultants handle multiple searches. That's another reason to impress the search consultant with your preparation for the call. Okay. The fourth piece of advice about that call that I want to give is that you should be very positive, very positive about the search, very positive about the role. Um, You can always decide later to pull out of the search. But if you're not positive, the search consultant will wonder whether or not you're really serious about the search. Remember, they get paid when they are successful. They do not want to promote someone to the search committee if they don't think that person is going to take the job in the end. It does many searches in to have somebody pull out along the way. So if you're not positive with the search consultant, you are really doing your chances in. So you need to prepare for that call. Laura, how, um, how, I don't want to say, it sounds like this is sounds dumb, but how I want to say how, I want to say how honest should you be? Because, but that implies that there's going to be any level of dishonesty. That's not what I'm trying to say. I mean, how, uh, what is the level of the relationship with this, with this consultant? Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure not sure I'm getting what across what I mean is that I understand that they, how you describe this as makes sense to me, but is there any point in this conversation or relationship? If it's more than one conversation, I'd say, you know, Dr. Schweitzer, thanks. I know you're the consultant here, but it, I'm not, I don't have a good beat on the environment or the culture there. And I, and I understand I've been told that they're looking for a, B, and C. And yet I'm curious about this LMNO that I keep hearing. Can you, it, at what point can I, um, can we engage in a maybe more authentic relationship or do we assume that that's not the case? You know, can you, do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's difficult. I mean, to be honest with you, I think it's very difficult to, I'm not sure the search consultant is the one that you want to engage in those conversations with. Mm. Because again, remember, the search consultant doesn't get paid unless they close the search. Mm. And so if they believe that you are vacillating, that you may not go on to the next level, then they are not going to help to promote you. Got it. Um, they're going to turn to someone else. There are other candidates who are gung ho want to complete the search. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So there are other ways, probably better ways, to find out about your concerns during the search process than through the search consultant. Cool. Right. I just think you need to remember whose roles are what in the search process. Everyone has very unique motivations and goals. So you're you're exactly right. Good. Okay. Number four, stating the needs of our partners too early. When does that happen? Where do people go wrong with that? Yeah, it's it's kind of similar in a way. So um, oftentimes candidates, especially at these high level uh, positions, have partners that are going to need jobs. 
um, in in the new geography location. Um, and so, you know, the question always is, when do I bring that up? That is such a common question to me as a coach. And I help my clients work through when is the exact right time for that. But in general, bringing up the needs of a partner too early is not a good idea. Um, it complicates a search. It makes you less attractive to both the consultant and the search committee who are all highly motivated to place you. Um, and uh, if there's someone as qualified as you are and in these high level searches, people are very qualified that make the long list and then the short list. These are highly qualified people. They get a lot of applications. They're going to move on to someone else. When is the right time to talk about the needs of a partner? After the search has progressed and you are emerging as a preferred candidate and people have gotten to know you for what you bring to the search. As an independent person, what do you bring and I use, often use the words fall in love. It's given the committee or the provost or whoever's hiring a chance to fall in love with you before you start dealing with complications. Often when you are emerging as a preferred candidate and you bring up the needs of a partner, that is the time that people bend over backwards to really help you figure that part out. Before that, like at the beginning of a search, they're not enough invested in you. There are plenty of other good candidates there. They're not enough invested in you to start investing in the energy of putting together a package for your partner. That's I have a silly example that popped into my head when I was interviewing a staff person at a former job and literally within gosh, a minute, two minutes of meeting her, she right away said, um, how much vacation time do I get? And when can I take my first vacation? And it was just kind of so uh, jarring to me. It's a legitimate question, but the timing of that question made me really just kind of put me in a bad footing with her because just kind of what you're saying, had I had she given me ample opportunity or more time to say, oh my gosh, she's the right one. She's perfect. What a great fit. I can't wait to get into your brain. And this is going to be a wonder and getting excited about her. And then her saying, gosh, I got a vacation plan. How much vacation? Then I'd be like, oh, sure, sure. We'll handle that later. But when you, yeah, you front load that, it makes it seem like inappropriate, needy. You're, you're missing, as you said in our first podcast, it's about them. It's not about you. You know, when I'm when you're applying for the job, it's all about what can I do to serve you to meet your needs, not what are you going to do for me and my partner and my family and my situation and my 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 my. So, <laughs> such an important piece of information. Okay, we're on number five: using cookie cutter documents. It's okay, efficient. That sounds yeah. efficient to me, right? So I'm just going to fire off any old letter I've got and change a few names, and I'm good to go, right? Exactly. Exactly. You really need to look at each search, read the position description carefully, figure out what they're looking for, figure out how you meet their needs and really uh, change your application documents based on each search. 
It doesn't have to be a massive change. Um, it can be tweaking, but let them know in your materials that you've thought about and looked into what they are looking for in particular, and that you have addressed what they are looking for. Again, if people are interested in a much more thorough explanation of how that applies at every point in the search, they should go back to the first podcast. That's right. Uh, number six, not preparing for the interview. Right. Um, a lot of people, uh, especially, you know, wow, I did an interview when I was starting my faculty life. So I, I think I can do this kind of an interview. Uh, no, these interviews are at a totally different level. And if you do not prepare for them, it's going to be blatantly obvious. Um, again, how do you prepare for the interviews? Look at the position description. Look, figure out what they're looking for. Figure that they're going to ask questions on what they're looking for, what your experience is, and how it relates to that, and uh, actually prepare for the interview. You know, the first interview is usually a, a large group of people, uh, a committee asking you, say, a dozen questions, 10, 10 or a dozen questions, and the focus on is on how your experiences and skills meet their needs. The second interview, the one that's a shorter list, a list of a few people, usually on campus, usually session to session to session, is focused on uh, you needing to explain what you are going to do for them. So a switch in focus. The first interview, what do you bring to the table? The second interview, you need to know about them and what you are going to do for them. Again, prepare for the interview and don't forget to prepare questions for them. Mm. That always happens, whether it's a big committee meeting or individual one-on-ones, people always ask, do you have any questions for us? If you don't have any smart questions that are prepared, uh, then you're really missing an opportunity. Yeah, and that's what I was kind of trying to get at. I was coaching someone who was in a process for a high-level position, and her relationship with the job search person was such that he was being, she felt purposely vague on why it was taking so long to get back to her. And she ascertained that she was not the top candidate, and hence they were holding her at bay to until they learned or negotiated with the first candidate. So she was having a hard time and almost feeling taking, taken for granted that it was taking like over a year and they wouldn't respond back to her. And this is where I was kind of, we really worked through this process of, well, they, they're saying they want one, two, three, but the more you're learning and thinking and the questions they ask of you, if you listen between the lines, and then when you come up with, as you pointed out, Laura, really good questions and hear what people say and more importantly, what they don't say, that might lead you to understanding the culture and the real needs. They may say on paper, we need this, but you've talked to enough people to ascertain that there's a big elephant in the room or something else happening here. So that's that's the nuance. I think the emotional intelligence of what you're saying is that preparing and really doing some deep dives into trying to understand gaps. And if you really truly can make an impact and a difference in that position. 
Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think the questions that you ask can sometimes be more important than the answers that you give. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. It shows a level of thought and curiosity and interest, and it, it also belies how you think. Yes. If you're asking, and, and if you've prepared, right, and if you looked at their stuff, I mean, if you ask them a question that's on page one of their website, you know, what does that tell them about you and your level of interest and preparation? Tell them you're lazy and yeah, you're not perhaps a serious contender, right? Right. Okay, great. Number seven, not telling people at back at the home institution before it gets back to them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is another question that people always ask me in every search. Should I tell my boss? Should I tell my uh, technician? Should I, you know, when is the right time to tell them? And, and so the general guidance that I give is, uh, to uh, you want to tell people that who you care about before they hear from somebody else. You want your boss to know, hear it from you before he learns it through the grapevine that you're on the job market and that you're a finalist for a position. You want the people in your lab or your assistant, your executive assistant, to hear from you rather than somebody else. So when's the right time to do that? Well, it's not too early in the search because too early in the search, you don't know if you're going to progress and you're going to be upsetting a bunch of people that don't need to be upset, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So when is the right time? The right time in my mind is when it's going to go public on the other campus just before that is the right time to tell people at home who you care about that you are a finalist or involved in a search. So usually searches have the search committee phase, which is the first interview. And the search committee in general, in my experience, is pretty darn good about keeping things confidential. If they're working with a search consultant, The search consultant has told them they need to keep things confidential. They have signed agreements of confidentiality, typically. You're pretty safe in not telling the people at home. But when you make the second interview, which is typically on campus, and you're meeting with a bunch of people who are not on the search committee, and it's being publicized, and it's just harder to control that is the time that you really need to tell your boss and tell the other people you care about on your home campus that you are involved in the search. Got it. And I'm sure people can get in touch with you for coaching if the scenario comes up that they're afraid to tell their boss because they're afraid their boss would say goodbye or you're, you're not, uh, you don't have the sense of, um, yes, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? You're not your loyalty. You're now your loyalty is being tested. So that's kind of scary. But that's sometimes a, uh, people even say to me, "I know that when I tell my boss, I will immediately be demoted, fired, pushed aside." <laughs> and so I help clients work through that. Right. Okay. Number eight: rushing the process, asking for status before it's offered. Yeah. 
Yeah, you were kind of getting at that before when you were talking about your client who, um, you know, was, hadn't really heard. They were kind of keeping her on the hook, but they, yes, I mean, that happens a lot. Um, and so, first of all, searches always take longer than they than they initially think. I mean, I have rarely seen a search stay on a schedule. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if they tell you, well, you're going to hear by next Thursday, I'd say, yeah, maybe, maybe you will and maybe you won't. And if you don't, it, you know, keep calm. Mm -hmm. It's a really hard time for clients between an interview and knowing whether they made the next step or not. It's a, it's a very emotional time. I often say before you go, do anything you're going to regret. Call me. Let's talk it through. Let me be your sounding board. Um, you know, but but don't rush things. Rushing things can only work against you. Um, what I say, if it's gone on a really a reasonable amount of time, maybe a little long, you can send a note and say, "I'm really excited about this search." I'm really anxious and anticipating hearing what's happening. Please let me know at your earliest convenience. Um, if you push people to tell you, am I in, am I out? I need to know, you know, they're going to say, well, you're out. I mean, if you were definitely in at that point, they would have let you know that. Mm. But if you push them, they're going to have to say, well, you're out or, you know, you're not in the first group. And, it really, it serves no purpose. I know it makes you feel better. It reduces your ambiguity, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, the best thing to do is to patiently wait. If it's gone on maybe a little too long to send that optimistic, very positive note saying, I'm still interested please let me know how it's progressing at your earliest convenience. And call your coach and complain and <laughs> if you feel like the need to get that out of your system. Number nine, giving notice at home before you have the offer in writing. Right. Okay. So unfortunately, this has happened to a couple of my clients where they have literally been told by the person who has the authority to offer the position I'm not talking about a search committee chair or a one-off. I'm talking about the person who actually has the authority to give the position have then never materialized a written offer. Oh, oh. And that is horrible. Yeah. It's unethical. You have to wonder about those leaders but it, it actually happens. So be careful. You don't have the job until you have it in writing. Mm -hmm. Good, good rule. Hard stop. Hard stop. Number 10, not negotiating, not writing in a severance package. Right, right. So there is a book called Women Don't Ask mm -hmm. that I highly recommend uh, women and men who are on the job market uh, read it. It talks about how to negotiate, especially for salary, but not only for salary. You should really think about all of your needs and negotiating them. Um, and if you don't know how to do that, you should hire a coach who can help you figure out how to negotiate. Yeah, def definitely. A severance package for a high level position is absolutely 
acceptable. Uh, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. I often tell people to phrase it something like, in the unlikely situation that you decide, you know, so there's a firing for cause. When you get fired for cause, you've done something wrong against the bylaws, against the law, whatever, you get fired for cause, and that's it. Your salary is over. But there's there are many times in these high-level positions, they just decide they want to move on to another leader, and they decide they want to do that before your contract is over. It happens. It happens a lot. Asking for a severance package is something that's commonly asked for. Um, again, phrase it in the unlikely situation that you decide you want to move on to a different leader. Um, I would like to know what my severance package is. And it's typically six months or a year with pay. Sometimes you have to stay on at the institution uh, to do some kind of work. Sometimes you can leave. Sometimes they prefer you leave. Um, but again, um, a good coach who's done these kinds of packages can help you uh, with what your ask would be for that or a good contract um, lawyer, someone who works in personnel hiring. You're right. I mean, so this is, we hear this all the time from early career faculty say, oh gosh, I wish I knew when we talk about salary inequities. Like I didn't know, I didn't know. And the book, like the Babcock book, Women Don't Ask, Lashiver book um, is brilliant on that. And you're right. I remember when you were coaching me and you said, I want you to put together this matrix of the things you're going to ask for um, and just think big picture. And I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, salary and benefits, do I have to worry about that? And you really, um, encouraged me to think about all the possible scenarios and playing that out. So there were just, it was not, it did not occur to me. And when you're in academic medicine, we're not taught these things. And so we oftentimes, you know, lose opportunities that will set us up for success and help um, mitigate any disasters that come forward. If you just do this thoughtfully and strategically, which leads us to your number 11, not seeking legal advice. I would never have thought to seek a legal um, person to look through draft contracts, but brilliant. Tell us about that. Right. Sure. Before we get there, back to the um, oh. back to the other parts of the package, uh, aside from salary. Um, so over the years, I have compiled a list of all, and many of them are individualized and kind of wacky requests that my clients have asked for in their contracts and in their startup packages. Um, and it just to jog people's memory about something that they might think about asking for that they wouldn't have otherwise thought about. So really beyond salary and vacation and all of the retirement, all the moving expenses, there's a lot of different kinds of things that you might want to include in, in your in your contractual request. The not seeking uh, legal advice early, you know, when you talk to a lawyer, uh, it's confidential. You don't have to tell the other party. You don't have to tell the hiring institution, I have a lawyer and the lawyer said such and such. You can listen to the lawyer's advice, use it or not use it. Um, but it gives you another set of eyes to look at something that's legally binding. It could have legalese in there that you don't understand. Um, it's it, For these high-level contracts, 
it's just a good idea to engage um, an HR lawyer, a contract lawyer, somebody who's done uh, personnel work before, um, especially somebody who's done it at this level and have them review your contract for you. It's going to cost you some money, but believe me, it's kind of peace of mind. Um, The one thing that's just amazing, and I just want to bring it up, is after you finalize what you think is a finalized contract, make sure you read through carefully the last version before you sign it. I had a client who worked through fairly extensive negotiations uh, using a lawyer, thought she had the terms down. The institution's lawyers changed wording in one, uh, one little part, which changed the intention considerably uh, without telling her at the last minute. So I know you hate to hear stories like this, but it does happen. And so you need to compare the version that you're signing with the version you think you're signing um, and ask questions if any changes have been made. Great advice. Wow. That is something I wouldn't, how many of us, when you're so emotionally like spent from going through the whole process and you're finally thinking we've dotted every I crossed every T and then we trust people to do the right thing. And some, it may not be any kind of, you know, malfeasance that they just literally like how many times have we sent the wrong attachment in an email or the wrong uploaded the wrong version of a manuscript or grant. It happens. So that is such an important minor, but very, very important detail and attention that we have to be engaged from beginning all the way through the end. Love it. Right. All right. I think we're on number 12, not thinking through your succession plan back home and not being prepared to start on the the new job on the day that it is announced. What what does all that mean? Right, right. And this is really after you've accepted the job and this is the transition. Um, So, uh, you know, one of the things that you really need to do before it's formally announced is think through what your preferred succession plan is. Of course, it's not really up to you. But, you know, there are people who you know about who deserve a chance to step into your position or part of your position, who you've been nurturing, you've been mentoring, you know, put together a plan with the way you would like that succession to go and give it to whoever's in charge. Uh, It's certainly not going to do you any harm and it might actually help people who you'd really like to help the people that are you're leaving behind. Um, and yes, be prepared to start the new job on the day that it's announced. It's amazing. These high level jobs, the minute that you're announced, you will begin getting emails from or phone calls uh, from uh, constituents at the institution you're moving to saying there's something really important I need to bring to your attention. I'd really like you to make the decision on this um, because we have to make a decision today, not two months from now, when you're going to start the job. And you need to be emotionally prepared for that because if you're thinking that between the announcement and the start of the job, it's going to be vacation time, 
It's really not. It never is. And I think you need to be prepared for that. Oh my gosh, I would never have thought that that, yeah, that people would be like, well, congratulations, Dr. Schweitzer. We can't wait to have you here in the meantime. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm still, I'm still crazy busy over here. And you've got me now I'm doing two full-time jobs. Right. When I was, uh, when I was getting the presidency at union, there was a tenure case and they reached out to me because they wanted me to weigh in on a tenure case, you know, a couple of months before I actually started as president there. And I just, said, you have to follow your process. But, you know, that kind of an outreach, it's, I've seen it over and over again. So the women who I placed as deans have all been made or asked to make decisions prior to their arrival. Um, And so it's really be prepared for that. Um, Be psychologically prepared for that. And I imagine a coach could help you also not only be prepared for it, but then um, discern the wisdom of how to weigh in on that. I mean, it's part of me thinks I'd be scared to death to be making position uh, decisions so prematurely before I know the facts and then be wondering like, wait a minute, am I being set up here that someone said, well, the new president told us we could do this. And so that, that I think would be very delicate where you really need a team of people and a coach that hopefully you negotiated um, in the, for the new position to help you figure out, wait a minute, is this something that you should be weighing in or should you take a minute and talk to some other people to figure out what's happening here? Right. Or ask them to wait. Wait. Yeah. And I like the other thing you said about the not having a succession plan. We don't want to burn bridges because I've seen instances where I'm sure you have people cycle back. They leave an institution, they go somewhere else and then they come back or they leave an institution and um, well, we're very proud to have people leave the nest and say, look at who we've set up. Look at the deans that we've placed through Dr. Laura Schweitzer. Look at all the department directors and chairs and leaders in the field. You want to leave with grace and respect and speak. Mm-hmm. Part of the thing where you like not being negative. You want to be proud and not be a sour grapes kind of person that um, you're lifting everyone up. So that you're not leaving people saying, gosh, can't, you know, can't, we're so happy we got rid of her. Mm-hmm. Um, we would never want someone. Sometimes like when people are moving up in their own institution or they are hesitating, they, they have an opportunity to move up in their own institution. And they're like, well, I can't do everything I'm doing now and do the, you know, this also. Right. That's true. So now think of that as an opportunity for the people you have been mentoring to date, how can you move them up? How can you get them ready so that you can take advantage of this move within your institution? Everybody wins. Love it. Well, everyone, this is Dr. Laura Schweitzer, right? Is this not the greatest coach you've ever heard with wonderful (laughs) advice? Schweitzer L at Mac.com. I'm going to spell it for you. And it will be on facultyfactory.org showing her episode, but it's S C H. W-E-I-T-Z-E-R-L at Mac.com, M-A-C.com. That's for Schweitzer L at Mac.com. Laura, it's always such a pleasure talking with you. You are so smart. I always learn so much from you. And thank you for all the contributions and the impact you're having in our field and being a strong advocate for women and women leaders. And um, anything you'd like to say before we sign off for today? 
I just want to thank you, Kim, for giving me the opportunity. As you know, pretty much nothing else gives me as much joy as helping people in this high-level academic job search. Um, it's the way that we're going to change the future. You know, uh, throughout my career, I always thought systemic change. Now I take it one person at a time. Every time I place a person, I believe that they're going to amplify, you know, all this good stuff that all these women and minority candidates bring to these jobs. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Love it. Love, love, love. All right, folks, see you next time on the Faculty Factory podcast. Um, tell everybody about it. Check out Dr. Laura Schweitzer's prior episode number 91. And um, why don't you be on the podcast? Email me at facultyfactorykim at gmail.com if you want to be on the podcast. Thanks, Laura. Bye, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.